0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Change in the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. only real estate brokerage that donates fifty percent of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Alrighty Roe and we're here. Hayden, thanks so much for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate it. I love what you're doing for our community and the the example that you're setting for many people. So I'm excited to have you on the show today.
1: Yeah thank you so much for having me Ethan. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure and what we always like to do is get the podcast started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you are doing at the moment.
1: Sure, so my name is Hayden Dansky, um, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, I'm the executive director of Boulder Food Rescue, which we're going to get totally into, um, yeah, um, how did I get here? It's an interesting question oh, yeah. <laughs> that's answered oh, yeah. every every which way, you know, um, I really um, have always kind of had this like connection to, um, nature as a place of like healing and, um, of like when i was a kid i would just like run i live i grew up in rural north carolina and so i just like run around the woods and like me and my brothers would just like go hang out by the creek all day and that was like our, our lives right and so um i felt like always like a sense of safety um growing up in that kind of environment um i didn't have much connection to like food uh necessarily growing up um but i did witness like my mom would like engage with people in terms of like different cultures. Like most of my friends I grew up in a um town where it was like a blue collar town we had like a chicken factory there's like a lot of uh, a large immigrant population there and so like a lot of my friends were like um these kids we would just like go run around the trailer park and my mom would like go talk to their parents who didn't speak english and would like you know learn about all these different cultures right and so like i think growing up i kind of had a witness to what it was like to engage with people and really across food and, like, needs and, like, you know, show up and support each other in the things that we needed outside of, like, maybe, like, a traditional system. Um, And um, my, uh, I lost both my mom and my brother uh, when I was nine years old, so I, like, experienced, like, a lot of uh, deep loss and trauma um, from a pretty young age. I won't get into the whole story, but um, from there, you know, I, like, really, like, grew up with a single parent who like worked and Put food on the table but a lot of my like upbringing was very much like go home make food for yourself kind of like get on with life and um so i didn't have a deep connection to food we didn't like eat around the table i didn't know where food was grown. I mostly ate canned food and microwave food and that was like my experience you know growing hmm. up in a single single parent household so um it wasn't until i moved to colorado where i really started um like refining my path um to um food and people uh through like what I would realize was like oh I could like learn how to cook from my friends and I've always kind of learned from like peers and friends um and so we would like just yeah gather and like um share food together right and um I started getting really excited about like what is this food that I eat every day and like where does it come from and and I just started learning like really like um how is it produced, where does it come from, how does it arrive here? Uh, what energy and resources go into that? And so I just like went down this whole world of like the environmental impacts of food and how the food system works. And then I learned about food waste, which is like, to me at that time, it was like, what? Like we do, we put so much energy into this thing that we consume every day and then we just throw away a half of it, right? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense for the environment. It doesn't make sense for people. Um, and so um, that's kind of, like, what I guess ended up, like, m- having me, like, end up in this, like, position with Boulder Food Rescue is I was, like, with friends. We were, like, oh, all this food's going to so waste let's do something about this. And we would have these huge meals, um, and everyone would gather. And, and I think that's, like, maybe a core piece of, like, who I am is, like, I'm just a person who creates spaces for people to gather. Um, like, I think that's, like, if I could say, like, I have a skill, that's it. I'm a, I'm a people gatherer. <laughs> oh, I, <love laughs> I like that. to create community. And, like, it's a fun from, life. It's really sweet, yeah. And, like, from there, I think so much emerges, right? When we get people in a room, I mean, I think this is the heart of organizing. Like, we get people in a room, we start sharing oh, I'm struggling with this thing or I have this barrier. And and I, as someone who maybe like experiences a lot of shame or internalizes the, the struggle, um, it can be really hard to share that. And so when we start hearing other people say like, oh, I have this struggle, oh, I have this struggle, and when we start finding those commonalities, um, I think that's something that happens really in a room with food. And it's the way that we can connect across, again, cultures, across um, all sorts of different identities because we have this commonality Or we get to share this thing that we need to survive, but in so many different ways. And we get to celebrate our diversity and our differences and the unique ways that we exist in the world. And I think that's like um, something that really draws me to BFR and kind of how I ended up in,
0: in this role. Yeah, I love that. That's really cool. And yeah, one of the things people really love is trying all sorts of different types of food. And it definitely is a huge way to like cross cultural divides because someone's always I mean, most people are really interested in like trying a new dish and finding something new that they love. And that's a great way for people to connect. It seems like one of the most common, like the common business meeting or like the first date, it's always like you go and like get some food for sure. Um, I'm i'm curious what prompted your move from north carolina to colorado and then i also as i understand it you were working in like the outdoor industry for like a really long time before you started boulder food rescue right
1: yeah um and that's kind of why i ended up in colorado i um so i kind of told a brief story of like yeah i mean my brothers would go out a lot um as i sometime in high school uh some of my friends really got into like outdoor sports I had never been camping in my life like this is not my father right so they were like yo come camping with us and we were like went out in the middle of a blizzard and like (laughs) had a good time um and so they kind of got me into like um living a actively like choosing time in nature to really cultivate for me like a sense of connection with this earth connection with um, uh, it's like a spiritual thing for me and and even though I'm alone it's like this feeling of like never alone right like just like I don't know um finding that sense of self that like I really needed um so and part of me was just like also running away from North Carolina and some of the struggle that I experienced there um certainly as a queer and trans person in uh the Bible Belt um totally. but also as like you know my, my childhood trauma was hard and I needed to get out um and Colorado was like this big dream like there's big mountains there uh, a <laughs> big dreamy place you know so I like got into climbing I got into backpacking I got into mountaineering just all the things um out here and I in boulders like I'm, I moved to boulder oh so I applied to school I went to see you too um Go bus. i got some scholarships uh that like sent me here i had never been to boulder so i was like cool um that it just kind of like the things just worked out in those ways you know um the fact that the scholarships were here instead of any other colorado school right and um just hmm. to have the amount of access like when i moved here to like i could literally bike up to the mountains like that was really freeing for me and it's such a privilege and something that i try like to not take for granted in my life. And if I do, I usually have to leave and come back and be like, oh yeah, this is such a, um, it, it is a privilege and it's really like a need for me in my life. Um, and so yeah, I, I got into uh, like all of these outdoor sports and um, found my way uh, into the outdoor industry because I would like go to the climbing gym and meet people and talk to people and um, they needed Uh, more folks who weren't like white men running their trips (laughs) so they're like hey come on in like you can do this and they really like built me up and taught me like a lot of the leadership skills like that um you know I didn't have at that time but I was able to learn from people I didn't know how to teach um but I was able to watch I think this is part of what I do too is just like how do I watch people and pay attention to the things that they do that I really like or really land with me? And how do I like incorporate that into what I'm doing, right? So I learned how to teach by watching. I learned how to lead by watching other people and being like, oh, uh, I wouldn't have ever thought to say it like that, but that's great. And so I really like was able to kind of, um, I guess start, like I didn't really think of it as a career necessarily, but um, it helped me pay my bills and get by and also i got to like work and be outside all the time so it was really sweet and it was at cu that i met a lot of the co-founders of boulder food rescue so it really did like um turn into like my path to to this place because i found other like-minded people who um who joined
0: right yeah that that's really cool yeah so i I, yeah i'm sure that it was like a a tough path for you based on on what i understand i'm sure a lot of people have varying degrees of, of difficulty in their life but I just love how you just you talked about how you were it was paying the bills, but you were out there doing what you love. And it sounds like now it's just transitioned into the exact same thing. And I don't think there's any better way to spend your time. And I really try to emphasize on this show that people like what you do with your career is so, so important. And If you're not doing something that's you're passionate about, it's just such a waste of time. But but anyways, um, so can we can we talk about like the origin of Boulder Food Rescue and then like, kind of what it has evolved into today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree and I, I don't even think to say that sometimes because I literally can't imagine myself right? in a position where like I hate my job and like I know that's like such a privilege too. Like people have to show up and like do what they need to do. Um and so I want to like acknowledge that and like I don't think I would make I don't think I'm cut out for a lot of those uh, kind of more traditional environments and so feel really grateful for that so um yeah and like how did bfr start well we started learning about food waste um we um there was a group of us who started doing these giant meals um in our houses like i was kind of saying and then we were like you know there are there are folks who who need this food um we started a program called food not bombs which is actually a national it's not not really sure if they're a nonprofit or not, but anybody can start a chapter basically anywhere they want. they kind of just like hand you like um, here's, here's how to do it. Right. Um, and it was started in the eighties and it was really started as like a meal to kind of in a, in a political statement to say like, okay, we're spending all of this, like these resources and money and um, energy in terms in, into weaponizing our, our country. Right. And creating bombs and, uh, talking about nuclear missiles and um, mm-hmm. our people are hungry. Um, and so that's that's kind of how it started. And, and really, there are chapters all around the country. Anybody could like, if this is one thing we were doing when we are traveling, we just go look up the Local Food Not Bombs chapter and go grab a meal and talk to people and meet people. And so, that's so um, cool. yeah, it's, it's really fun. You can cook with people too and share it. And it's just really a free meal for anybody who wants it, right? Um, so we started that up. Um, and there were a couple things that we learned from people who were eating that meal we had like a hundred folks out in the park it was always a good time people were like playing music and hanging out and um one thing we did that, that we didn't necessarily realize was like unique or different because we were coming at it from such a different angle was like anybody could cook clean serve participate right like there was no rules around like oh you have like if you are unhoused you have to line up here and if you're not then you get to surf right like we didn't have any rules like that we're like yeah sure you want to clean great you know and so we created this space where we really started to like um, obscure those lines between who has resources and who doesn't like who's serving and who's being served and what people would tell us because it was a really a good mix of folks who were like again unhoused was like you know um, people. Um, people with families, people uh, with housing but want to come out and eat a meal, like it was a a strange mix of folks, um, but people would say like this is the healthiest meal we get all week because we were getting like primarily fruits and vegetables, Um, and they would say this meal is different because we all sit down and eat together, and I think those two pieces of feedback like really informed the values of Boulder Food Rescue in a lot of ways, like we distribute food, I'll talk about would be a virus, but we distribute food, but we do it in a way of like, how do we all do this together? How do we all sit down and eat together? You know, is, is kind of the value behind it. And then another thing that was happening at that same time is a couple of the co-founders, there were five of us, um, I had graduated CU, but there were two others, uh, four others that were there, and two were um, getting their PhDs and did this research uh, with the data from the food bank around food waste. And they showed that there was enough food going to waste in Boulder and Broomfield County to feed every food insecure person in Boulder and Broomfield County, um, simply off of that food waste. But there was this big issue in terms of like, optimization of like, how do we get that food to people? And what are the struggles, like, why isn't that happening now? What are the barriers the food bank has? Um, And we found out that by the time that, um, especially produce, like those like, more perishable foods would like go from a grocery store who's donating it because it's about to go to waste to a food bank and then get sorted and then redistributed it out to a food pantry and then that would then get to people like three to seven days can pass and so in that system those more perishable foods like fruits and vegetables are going to go bad um so simply because of the ways in which they are you know trucking food to the warehouse sorting it putting it out in this like kind of big Uh, And and like, I don't want to like discredit, like they move a lot of food around, but those more perishable foods are going to go bad. And so we really created a model to take food directly from a grocery store to a community that can use it right away. And so that, so I say all of that because that I think explains Boulder Food Rescue. We form relationships with grocery stores. They donate food that would otherwise be wasted. Um, And we can talk about what that is, but it's mostly produce. Um, Is what we're focused on. And then we take that directly to about 40 different communities across Boulder. Um, and then those communities distribute it out to, to people. And we do that uh, with the power of about 150 volunteers. Um, right now we're doing about 12 shifts a day, every day of the week. We distribute about 1500 pounds of food a day. Um, and we do as much as possible by bicycle so that was like another component of what we were doing we're like you know we're gonna take all this food out of the landfill uh and like you know remove that like waste like might as well not drive cars let's use bikes And, and it made sense at that time but the unintended like benefits is that we engage a whole community of of volunteers who might, you know, enjoy biking who wouldn't drive it or who might um, be excited to try out biking and learn that, oh, bike commuting is actually really feasible. Um, I can do this. And um, that doesn't mean all of our volunteers bike. We certainly encourage people to be safe and do what they can. It, you definitely have to be physically able to bike. And so we do have car shifts, but we say as much as possible by bike. Um, and um, and it's, it's pretty fun. And then we take that food directly to um like w- what the heart of our programming is now like we used to take food directly to like food pantries and, and meal programs like shelters um, the bridge house um, and we do still do some of that but i think what we really shifted and what we focus on now is what we call no cost grocery programs and those are programs that happen at communities um and then residents of those communities distribute the food amongst themselves so instead of taking it to a pantry where somebody has to go out figure out what times they're open, stand in line, have the right paperwork, qualify, get a certain amount of food, figure out transportation back. We take it directly to like affordable housing sites or preschools or daycares or places where people are already gathered. And the whole point of that is to decrease barriers to accessing food. Um, So instead of them having to go do all that work, it comes directly to their community room at their affordable housing site or their neighbor's house or uh, the playground area or the laundry room and they know when that's happening. And then you can just basically go for like a free grocery shop there um, with what we get. Right. So it's like primarily produce, sometimes some other things. Um, and then the residents at their sites, they really they receive the food. Uh, they put the food out. They call their neighbors. They distribute it out. they. Um, you know, clean up what's left, they're, they're really in charge of that program, and they get to make decisions around how that program runs, so each one's really different, sometimes it's a, a table where it's like a free shop, sometimes it's uh, people do like door-to-door deliveries, you know, they have like ordering systems, Is really different depending on the program, because it's, it's what really meets that community's needs, and so that's the idea behind it, it's like people actually have all sorts of ingenuity and creativity and connections in their communities. They're already leaders in their communities. How do we use food as the tool to um, allow them to express that and to give back and to support their neighbors um, without saying like, oh, we have the way it should run in your community. It's like, no, they know what's best for their community. They're just like lacking the resources, like in wages or food, right? And so they get to like, enact that power.
0: So did you, you guys just look at the way the system was currently out? first off, how many years has this been going on?
1: 10 years. Wow.
0: Okay. So did you just look at the system and then totally create your own model that you thought would work more efficiently? Or was there anything else similar to this? And since you started, have you seen anything similar pop up around the country?
1: Yes. So there are, there were certainly food, some food rescues, right? So we, again, talked to the food bank, understood their model. Just different Um, from a pantry. You call it a rescue. It is a rescue. So we don't have a physical space where people can come in and get food, which Mm -hmm. comes with its own challenges sometimes, too, right? Um, We're completely decentralized, though. So we take it directly from the grocery store to a community. So we don't have like a space that somebody can come, um, which we have ways of connecting resources if they're not necessarily out of those communities, but we're not a pantry in that way. Some food rescues did exist, but about 10 years ago for what I've, I actually don't know why, um, there was like kind of an emergence of a lot of different food rescues. There were some people who are doing, um, there there have been some food rescues who've been around uh, 20, 30 years even, right? So we're not the first. I think we were one of the first to kind of combine some of the elements of um, food rescue, of the bike based model. That was pretty unique. There were some folks who were doing some bike based delivery, but not necessarily food rescue or like the nonprofit model. And then this like kind of participatory community based piece that I'm talking about, which is like kind of big buzzwords, but like where people really are engaged in their programs. Um, that's like a form of mutual aid that's also been happening for a long time, but really kind of combining these elements to create BFR. Um, I think was unique in a lot of ways, and then we've just learned a lot along the way. So what BFR is now is kind of an of things we've really learned about our community and about just different ways to do this work.
0: And how has this culture like evolved over the years and how has it affected the people, the vol, whether it be the volunteers or the full-time workers who are in charge of the management of the whole organization, how has that like changed and how to, how are people like, what is their, their people's take on this model?
1: So, yeah, I think, um, I did mention like, we've kind of shifted a little bit more or we've shifted more into like really developing these grocery programs and like community-based work. Um, I think overall that just we and we can get into that a little bit too but like it works better for people um because they have agency and power over their own program so there's like this additional element of like it's not just about the food but it's a there's an emotional component and a mental there's like a mental health component um of like having agency and having voice um and so that's why we've really centered that most volunteers who we train now who are the um like bike couriers are like the only like I think the biggest shifts is we've really put a lot of emphasis on like making sure that we um, sort food really well so we're making sure we're like delivering actual good food to communities and that they don't have the additional labor of kind of like receiving bad food and like the emotional labor that comes with that Um, but volunteers are really down for that right Um, and a lot of the model of just biking food from grocery store to community um, has remained the same. I think the difference now is like we connect a lot of the bike volunteers with the community volunteers, uh, which we call grocery program coordinators, and they build relationships outside of us. So they actually even have their own communications and their own relationships and like end up like coordinating amongst themselves, which I think is super cool. Like sometimes I think our work is like really setting it up and they're like getting out of the way. Um, And so I think that shifted. And then in terms of staff, like we started with all, as an all-volunteer program and then we've just slowly grown over the last 10 years. And I think we're still very grassroots in a lot of ways. Um, and there's been all sorts of challenges that come with that when you're all volunteers and you're working, you know, two other jobs and trying to get this thing off the ground, there's challenges. Um, when I was like the first paid staff, uh, there was challenges because a lot of responsibility and too much work, right? And so a lot of the shifts that we've had to do is like, how do we like, create a culture where we're not stuck in that kind of like, almost, it's like a framework that people have around nonprofits and almost like an acceptance of something that I think is unacceptable, like, oh, yeah, you're underpaid and overworked, that's nonprofit life. And I'm like, <laughs> what if it it doesn't have to be that way like maybe we shouldn't accept burnout as the norm right and so what we've really had to do like especially as we've added more staff and now we have nine nine staff members like how do we create a culture where yeah we're totally supporting one like this community and showing up really hard but we also like deserve to live in the world we're trying to create like we also deserve to like have breaks and like take time away and be paid a livable wage so that we can also show up for ourselves right and that can be a challenge unfortunately (laughs) um especially in the society it can be a challenge um and so um i think that's kind of like what we're trying to shift towards and we still have a lot of work of like kind of crawling out of the hole of being overworked and underpaid for a long time
0: totally i think that might just be the general theme of the of the 2000s It's just what if it doesn't have to be that way and we and i think i, I hear a lot of yeah i hear a lot of this um you have this um inkling towards decentralization and community leadership and I definitely want to talk speak a little bit to that why why that's so attractive and how you've seen it um work really well over the years with what you've been building and you have this idea of like shared leadership at um Boulder Food Rescue so I just wanted you to speak a bit to that and why it's so appealing and how it's worked for you over the years. Sure
1: um yeah so like and it When we talk about shared leadership, we're talking about how do we do this on like many different levels. So, when we talk about it at the grocery programs, like on this programmatic level, um, I had to, and I maybe I should say, like, I didn't understand it. Kind of just makes sense. Like, you give food to folks, and you're like, what do you want to do? Do you want this? What do you think? You know, like, so it feels very simple in a lot of ways, but it's actually can be complicated because people have different ideas and they might be different than what your ideas are. And as a person who's in a position of power, it takes a lot of like recognizing that and like not saying like, oh, I don't have any good ideas, but making sure that like I'm really taking into account different perspectives. Um, and a lot of humbling, right? Like a lot of like watching your ego crash before you over and over. You're like, oh, okay, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and it can take a lot of um, emotional work. It can take a lot of labor. And so I think a lot of nonprofits don't do that. They simplify labor by saying, like, this, these are the rules. This is the way it has to be. You have to line up at the pantry at 9 a.m. You know, you have to take a number. You have to fill out this form. And they're stuck to, the same, they're also beholden to systems that are maybe outside of their power. Like, um, oh, the government funding needs this, you know, um, oh, we have to track this amount of data, which can be hard for maybe like undocumented people to go fill out data. Right. Um, but they need it for some report. Right. And so like, they're also stuck in, in this system that's maybe not working. Um, but it's just easier. And so they create these rules and this like way of being that um, makes it easier for them. But I don't think it necessarily works better for people. Right. Um, People don't have agency or voice or power or even the ability to give feedback or if they want to give feedback, it comes at a big risk. And I think oftentimes people in power don't understand that or see that we have a resource that somebody needs to survive. There's power in that. And so you can't be like holding this resource and be like, tell me what you think of me without like developing (laughs) like some like sense of like trust, right. That like, if you tell me something honest, that's maybe hard for me to hear that I'm not going to keep this resource from you. Right. And that takes trust and that takes relationship building. And so I think our work in terms of sharing power, when we say, we want people to trust us, we have to show we trust them. And so to do that, we have to really develop structures where people actually have power over their own decisions and their own programs and their own communities. And that does take a lot of work and time. And I think it's often not seen by funders necessarily as beneficial, right? It's not seen by even, it takes, you know, I could talk about this for hours uh, just to get at like why it's important. And so that can be hard to explain in a, hundred character count, you know, answer to a question on a grant. So um, I think typically because that work is underfunded too, and it does take time, it can be hard to, um, it could be hard to do. Um, And I think it's super important because what happens is people develop programs that work better for people. Um, They work better for people um, because they know what works best for them. And so um, that's what we're doing programmatically. And then we kind of have to do that internally as well. as we do have um we do have some amount of hierarchy right um it's a it's a short hierarchy and we make sure that that hierarchy has structure in place for people to give real genuine feedback where they're not going to feel like oh my job's on the line right and i hear that all the time from folks who like maybe work a job where they don't trust their boss or they feel like like we have to again we're holding a resource that people need to survive like money right um and so if you're in a down power position, it can be really hard <laughs> to give real genuine feedback. And so it's our job as leaders, I think, to create the systems and trust where people, and that means also not just having the system in place, but how do you respond when somebody gives you feedback? That's hard to hear. Um, are you open to it? Are you reflective of it? Are you accountable to your actions? Like, are, do you apologize for the harm that you Because co- Cause we're gonna cause harm to people. That's what humans do. We're messy. We're all just like a bunch of messy balls bumping into each other causing harm. So, um It's true. And so like.
0: But we get better over time
1: we heal. And yeah, and so like, I think our work is really like being in process, being accountable to that harm, doing things differently. And people learn, oh, I can show up and and be in this relationship. And and that's my work too, even as a leader of doing it with other folks, it goes both ways. And so how do we create those places where people feel like they can, um, and not just give feedback around hard things, but be their whole self at work. Like we don't, like you talked about being in a In a job that you love I think we attract a staff team of people who want to work where they don't have to like compartmentalize themselves to show up to work to be like oh that's my personal life and this is my work life and there's some amount of that because we're humans and that's what we do but like we get to be our full identities as, you know, there's a lot of queer people, there's a lot of trans people, there's a lot of people of color, how do we all come together across, you know, multicultural group of folks, and like get to be our whole selves and learn from one another, right? How do we get to be our like emotional messy selves, you know, what happens in our lives affects us. Um, If somebody has a loss or a hard time, it affects us. So we get to like share that with our team. And I think that's some of our work too is like letting people be their whole selves and then also take the time they need to like be away from one another. We don't, it's not like you have to share everything. Um, it's just like the space is there if you need to. And it's also okay if you, if you don't need to. And so I think, um, it's like creating a community of people. It's like, uh, Emma, Martin Luther King talks about beloved community. I think that's like what we're really trying to t- trying to create at work um, with one another um, and like laugh a lot and play a lot and have fun along the way because this h- work is hard and I think we deserve to like also have joy in our lives. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. That was 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 an amazing answer. It was like a
0: sonnet. Oh, I I love it. The picture that you paint of your community is is so beautiful when you talk about all the different people from different backgrounds coming together and Mm. coalescing. And not only that community, but what you're doing Mm. is truly spectacular. And there's no doubt in my mind, you've helped thousands of people Mm. over a decade. And it's great. And then here comes the but. Wouldn't we love to see a, a world where food didn't need to be rescued? I, I am sure this has ca- crossed your mind over the years so many times. How could we reform this system so programs like this, as amazing as they are, as much as they are beyond a doubt making the world better today, I personally am all, always focused on systems change because it's so obviously necessary. So I wanted to ask you, what, what have you learned about the food system over the last 10 years while you're helping all the people, while you're you're fixing or mending this, this truly broken system. How have, how have you, how has your thoughts evolved on how we could potentially like fix it or make it better? I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. I just really wanted to get into this with you.
1: Oh, I love it. Uh, and I so appreciate that. Cause I feel like a lot of times, um, nonprofits fall to like addressing the symptoms of that system. Right. Um, And we can get really stuck there because there's a lot of them and we're just going to keep putting all of our energy into like, you know, giving food to people, but giving food to people isn't going to solve the reason why people are hungry, (laughs) you know, which is like strange, right? We would think maybe that, um, that's true, but you know, here's something I've learned, right. To get to your question. Um, I've learned about, yeah, charities and nonprofits and, um, like we can see like with the rise of food banking and or or i should say emergency food relief giving food to people uh if they're hungry um food insecurity rates haven't gone down um in fact they've only like kind of maybe gone up or they really follow uh the similar rates as economic insecurity rates right because we live in a current system where most people don't grow their own food and like right and like feed themselves off the food they're grown. Most people go to the grocery store and buy food here in the, I'm, I'm in a very US context here, but um, we're, that's what we do. We go to the grocery store, we purchase food for ourselves. So in order to get food, what we actually need is money. Um, and so food insecurities really resolve economic insecurity. Um, and with that, with money and the ability to go to a grocery store and get the foods that we want and need to be healthy, uh, there's choice. Um, we can get foods that are familiar to us. We can get foods that look and taste good to us, right? We can get foods that um, we know how to cook with. When we don't have access to money um, and we have to use emergency food relief, um, like food banking or food pantries or even Boulder Food Rescue, um, we lose that access to choice. We get the foods that they have. Maybe there's like limited, Amounts of produce. Maybe there's like certain amounts that you can get. You can take three cans and two apples. Um, There's lack of access to choice around like, when are they open? Um, How am I going to get there? Um, What types of information do I need to get there? or even like, oh, I have to qualify, so I have to make a certain income level. If I'm just over that, we see that with food sna- uh, SNAP, which is food stamps, all the time. People who are just over their amount, they don't get any access to food stamps, but they still can't afford food, right? And so, um, having to qualify, or if I get a raise, I'm going to lose my food stamps, which actually hurts me, right? And so that's yeah, like
0: that painful margin. I've, I've heard of that where, and people absolutely. can get stuck in poverty because it doesn't make sense economically to make more money because then you're like
1: screwed. Yeah. Pretty much, you, it's like the it's called the cliff effect. You lose your benefits and you end up end up hurting yourself more. So um, that was a random uh, kind of tangent, but that's something that we see that we're not actually addressing the root cause, right? The root cause being economic insecurity, um, and we can get into to that a little bit more if we want. And then we see the food waste side of things, and they're almost like they both ultimately have the same root. I would say like oh, lots of things lead back to some of the same root causes of like capitalism white supremacy of <laughs> uh, patriarchy when I mean, you look at these big systems but they're almost like I, I feel like sometimes food rescues fall into the trap of uh, trying to address both simultaneously I mean like as' always we say we, we take the food that's going to waste we feed it to the people who who need it um but if Food insecurity root cause is like economic insecurity, lack of access to living wages, lack of access to like fair employment, housing. You know these things that affect people's like economic security, um, and housing is totally intersecting with that. Um, you know, food waste is also like isn't necessarily going to solve that. It has its own kind of issues, and 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 it's it's ultimately leads back to this like idea that like. Right now, food waste is still profitable. Um, Grocery stores benefit if they overstock their shelves because people are more likely to purchase food if they see abundance. Right. It's like it's a wild it, world. It's yeah. You know, when you're at that party and there's one cookie left on the plate and you're like, I want that cookie. I'm not going to take the last cookie. You know, like that happens <laughs> like when there's less, like we don't take it. And so when there's more, um, people are more likely to purchase more. Um, so it's profitable for them to overstock their shelves. And then also we're more likely to purchase, um, things that look perfect. Um, you, you mm-hmm. have your you know no bruises on your apples you have your iconic carrot you know and if it has like a funny divergence or something you're not going to get that one and and that makes sense if you're going to spend your money you might as well get the one with no bruises <laughs> like it totally makes sense but it doesn't mean that that um apple's bad you just got to cut off the bruise right and so um they're kind of also like beholden to this like um kind of demand of like consumer perfection and what we need. And so, um, so those are the foods that we often see are going to waste, you know, sometimes it's like slightly damaged things, funny looking things. Sometimes it's just that they got a new shipment in and they have also to maximize profit. They're going to, um, and this might be way too much detail, but they're gonna like uh, sure. maximize the floor space and how much they have out for consumers, which means their back backend space is very small. They don't have a lot of room for storage. And so once something comes off the shelves, it's gotta go out right away, which is also one reason why we pick up from a lot of grocery stores every day. They're pulling food off those shelves sometimes three times a day. Sometimes we do two shifts a day. Um, and so um, <laughs> it's a lot of food waste. It's a lot of food waste. And so like, we need to if we want to like address that what we need to start looking at is um, how do we make source reduction just as profitable or more right exactly how do we actually because you would think oh like not spending the money on purchasing that food and trucking across the country would be cheaper but for some reason because of subsidies and the ways they work because of like what's incentivized even like and this is like probably ruffles the feathers of a lot of like food donation charities but like it's incentivized for the grocery store which is great like it grocery stores get tax credits if they donate food that's great because then they're more likely to donate food than to throw it away but it doesn't necessarily incentivize source reduction right um and so it's good for us because we're more likely to get more food that we can take to people it's better for than going into the landfill or even to the compost like we'd rather feed people than the compost too but we also need to look at how do we yeah. How do we get really creative around the ways in which that we can stop purchasing that food in the first place, shipping it over in the first place, and um, yeah, that's like a another big world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what that looks like.
0: Well, I mean, this is. The economic security thing, I, I don't have, I don't have a any anywhere near an idea or an answer for that. I, it's something I've been thinking about lately. How like I've been like like the other day, I was like drawing on my board how like the world's money is like can be split into like triangles, and like the smallest percentage of the bo- of one triangle has like none has like all of the money. And then the other side has like none of the money. And then like, there's this big part in the middle where a lot of the resources are. And it's something, and it's, it's interesting how I've tried to find a way to not specifically focus on one um, political issue in order to help as many people as possible. I've focused on climate change because I figure, okay, everyone lives in the climate. I can help everyone by helping that. And then you find out that it's all connected and there's no escape. And you have to, you have to try and fix everything if you want to fix one thing in, at least when it comes to like the environmental, issues so that's um that's been hard for me when i'm trying to be like rigidly focused but um i i really believe in this idea that I, i don't think that the society is like horribly tyrannical worst it's worst it's ever been i think that we're the humanity is generally doing better than it's ever been before but that doesn't mean that we can't continue to improve off of that and there's obvious specific points like talking about trucking thousands of pounds of produce out of a grocery store that would have been thrown out it just seems like an obvious point of intervention that could be fixed so yeah i don't, I don't know is there anything you've thought about how even if it was like 20 to 30 percent of our food wasted rather than 40 to 50 percent that would be an immense improvement you know
1: yeah um (laughs) totally well and i I appreciate you saying it's all connected because even though that is hard it is true and i think it's important because climate the climate crisis does affect well obviously people (laughs) this is the planet we have to live on um and it disproportionately affects people right who maybe um are going to take a bigger hit if you know they're properties damaged who live in places that they can't necessarily escape like we see that i mean we see it all the time and so uh, we don't have to get totally into it but I think well, it's, it's
0: all the same important. we're always we're yeah. leeching off the bottom percentage of the population in order to live and that's how society has always been but the reason why i'm optimistic is because it used to be two percent of people leached off of 98 percent of people and now we've gotten to like two percent leeching off of like 40 percent. so i'm hoping we can keep you know what i mean do you know what i mean when i say that
1: i don't know it depends on the day (laughs) it depends on the day for me but yeah i'm like i don't know you probably know better than me um well and i think there's this piece around like we have i think like we kind of have to address it like our survival depends on it and i don't think you know a society that exploits people for power and money addiction like is inherently sustainable you know like um i think in a lot of ways it is it's going to fail um because it kind of has to um and i think that adrian marie brown adrian marie brown's like a big inspiration um to some of our work um, and writes a lot about like uh, emergent strategy and looking at nature for patterns. And, um, but she says this one one time I heard her say something like um, utopias are constantly being being created in the dystopia. And I love that because I love like this idea of like, yes, like we are, and like, these systems are big and it can feel really defeating and we have all these little microcosms of really cool stuff happening and like we see worker-owned co-ops for example like popping up a lot even in a capitalist economy where like workers are starting to have voices and like agency and like power um that's one thing i would say and i know we got to get back to the food waste angle but in this world in this world we're imagining i think we might need all sorts of i don't know the answers first of all i have no idea what this well, world well looks like necessarily but i can imagine um you know like there has to be living wages and fair working conditions for people and especially i would say people who are growing our food because some of our farm workers are some of the most disproportionately affected people in these systems like terrible working conditions, oftentimes trafficked folks, lots of undocumented people who have no agency whatsoever, lots of wage theft, lots of like, um, really harsh conditions, and then the people growing food, right? So when we look at the food system, like we need to have some type of like reform there. And I think that would actually like it does if we if we could shift to uh, more like local and regional food producers and hubs, then we're gonna have more agency in how people are treated. And we're also gonna actually probably reduce food waste because we're we're gonna become less. And I'm not saying we should like cut out all things that are shipped across the country or the world, but we could start to imagine um, systems where um, some of those subsidies that like, I guess, um, incentivize food being shipped across the world or even foods that are like, there's a lot of subsidies for like corn and soy, um, which then end up producing lots of foods um, that are really unhealthy for people, um, which end up essentially like, you know, we see like high fructose corn syrup in a lot of the cheaper foods, for example, yes. lots of sugars, lots of soy products. And so the people people who can, will get the foods that they can afford End up having all sorts of health disparities, and so like we see hunger is actually like intersecting with like obesity or diabetes, right? And then you have way more economic problems because you have health disparities and like higher rates of yeah medical costs and things like that. And that's a that's another world. But like when we start to sh- shift, like where are the subsidies going? What are the what is the government subsidizing? Um, we can imagine a world where maybe local and regional food production is subsidized, and we have. Because right now it's pretty it's pretty expensive to buy the true cost of food locally. That's not necessarily accessible for everyone. And there are programs like Double Up Food Bucks where you can double your SNAP dollars at the farmers market. There's cool things that are happening around that. But maybe we start to imagine worlds like that where that would actually reduce food waste because foods like there's less you know trucking costs and we lose food in shipment and things like that. Um, But we could also like maybe have more agency and voice over the foods that we get, right? We can imagine um, maybe systems where like food waste also happens at the farm level. They won't harvest food if it looks funny because consumers aren't gonna buy it. So we can start to shift, well, what will consumers purchase? Or could you purchase it? There's cool programs happening on this, like purchasing like ugly foods or imperfect foods, right? At lower cost. Um, Could we like incentivize harvesting at a farm um, and the farm workers and <laughs> laborers don't have the resources to do that. So like, are there alternative systems where we can pay for that food so it doesn't just fall on the farmer to figure it out who's already like struggling to make, make do, um, but get that food at the farm, right? So it happens at the farm, it happens in transport, it happens in the grocery stores, right? We talked a little bit about um, source reduction, incentivizing that, incentivize, like some grocery stores are starting to figure it out, repurposing foods internally. Um, this is still kind of within this capitalist framework, but we're, we can imagine cutting it down a little bit. Um, Whole Foods is figuring this out, which kind of makes sense because they're owned by Amazon and they're really good at figuring these types of things out, but like um, <laughs> something that's gonna go to waste you can then turn into a prepared food and then someone's actually gonna end up buying Pay more for it but a lot of those prepared food bars actually end up kind of creating a little circular economy within the store um and then like at the consumer level you know like humans will go buy food i, know I said humans people will go buy food at the store we <laughs> take it back to our we take it back one to of our, those <laughs> one of those weird human things um and then we're like I think that's accurate and then we like throw away most of what we produce and that's often because you know some of us are busy right um we forget about things it's gonna happen but the more there is a little bit more like awareness and education from that individual level and that is where a lot of food waste happens right um and so if there's ways that we can like you know reduce the amount that we buy at a time or like um repurpose it internally things like that then we can at least start to make some of the steps to addressing some of that food waste.
0: Well- Hayden thanks you thank you so much for sharing that was perfect I think we've covered we've covered the food stuff uh, on this topic fair on this uh, podcast fair enough and I'm gonna be talking I'm just getting started on this topic I'm gonna be talking to people who are looking at the system from a higher level and I think consumer preferences um, is a huge factor and the thing about it is consumer preferences always change um, as society changes and I always I personally believe that society can change based on the actions of leaders and individuals working together so I, I have a lot of faith and like I said I I appreciate everything you're doing. So yeah, that's great as far as Boulder Food Rescues. But before we finish this podcast, I wanted to talk about something else that you're doing that you have this other project. You just recently released this book. And I wanted to just talk about the uh, the impact that art and poetry has in your life. Because you obviously have this strong connection to the people you work with. You love this community um, way of looking at life. I don't even know what I'm saying. But um, yeah, I just love to talk about art and poetry if I can manage because I'm always talking to like scientists and ec- economists and stuff. But uh, this is a, a good way to end the show.
1: Totally. Um, I appreciate you bringing it up. Yeah. And I can totally get into all the like crazy systems change that we need. And, and I appreciate I, I will get into art and poetry. I just want to appreciate you for asking those questions because I feel like so many nonprofits don't like our goal, right, is to work ourselves out of a job. And it's really important for us to talk about even the ways that we're beholden to these same systems, and that we actually need to stop trying to protect ourselves and really say what's happening, um, and look at ways that we don't exist anymore. Right. And so I just wanted to appreciate that. Um, Thank
0: you for saying that. You're the first nonprofit leader I've heard say that. So that means a lot. I'm glad that you said that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is unfortunate to see, like, oh, a lot of the nonprofits are actually just working, like, not addressing the root cause, not holding corporations accountable, people who don't pay their workers well, because they need those people to be coming in the doors to make money and that, like, I'd rather, I'd rather go out fighting with the truth then <laughs> then uh, just keep on like living the lie, I guess. Hey, that's a great lead into art and poetry. Send it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, there's this, um, what writing does is helps me externalize Things that are happening internally that I don't even know you know it helps me like create link okay Uh, Dominique Christina she's a poet she says uh, words make worlds and I love that because it's like oh um, Bell Hooks who just passed away also talks about like we have to imagine a world to be able to like I'm just butchering this quote but she talks about this like um, it's really important to like have like um, we have to imagine a world if we're ever gonna like make change and be in it right and so what I think art and poetry does is it enables me to create language and worlds around things for my own healing and my own process of like growing up in this world right and um there's also this creative element that i think is really important for me to connect to because one thing i can do as we just went off into the tangent around systems change is like intellectualize as a way to not like it's almost like a it's helpful and it's fun and it's cool to think about these things but it can disconnect me from the actual emotional experience that's happening if i can just figure it out then i don't have to feel it and so what art and creativity can do is like actually help me connect to oh actually this world can be pretty painful sometimes or scary right like the climate crisis is scary um and so it's a different way of expressing um that helps me connect to the emotional components of what it means to be a human in this world and so um i do this a lot through like performance poetry in particular i think it's my jam because like there's the writing element and then there's the performing element and that's where i think yeah, loop back to the beginning um expressing that you might not believe this, but I, I, I used to be, like, really withdrawn and shy and, like, totally mute. I, like, barely I talked to everything. people. <laughs> cool. I, like, I, yeah, I, like, was, like, this, like, shy, withdrawn kid. I, like, didn't know how to talk to people. And so now, like, I'm in this place where it's, like, oh, I'm, like, expressing these, like, deep emotional internal worlds to people. And people are, like, whoa, I feel that or I've experienced that or your shame looks like my shame, right? And to, like, name those things helps create this, like, connection and I think that we all need to heal. Like saying the truth is important because a lot of us don't know how to do it. We don't, um, I grew up in a world of like secrets and gaslighting and trauma and like, I didn't know how to share what was going on because it was too scary. I didn't know if it would be held. So like um, I think that process helps us like unlearn those things and like learn how to be in connection with people. Um, And so I really love that. Um, I wrote this book about like, I guess that like the unlearning of um, shame and like learning how to like find myself and that's like through a lot of my experiences and identities it's kind of like a memoir of poetry um, it's called I would tell you a secret and um, it's uh, yeah it's like kind of like deconstructing the narratives and like finding out like well, who am I and then offering that to the world to hopefully uh, allow people the space to go through that own process, their own process, and become whoever they are um, and honor honor that and their differences. And so that's my poetry of the world.
0: I, I love that. Th- thank you so much for sharing. Where can people buy the book?
1: Um, you can get it online in, uh, like, Bookshop or Amazon. Um, or Classic. you can get it through me. Um, so if you go to haydendansky.com, um, you can find my performance poetry and the book. And that's actually preferred because... Amazon takes large cuts. Which I, they take large cuts, so it's always That's nice. What, this, and this, I this can like do. write you a note and send you it in the freaking mail, just like you know, connect with you. And and so you can just get it online there, and and I'll send it to you. Um, so HaydenDansky.com is the easiest place to get it.
0: Yeah, well, Hayden, you're, you're super inspirational. I appreciate you coming on the podcast today, and I, I definitely I like to ask that question when I have the opportunity because I really believe. A lot of the best art comes from trauma. First off, and then second mm-hmm. off, when you're able to take what's inside and create something external out of it, I really feel like there is this healing, this soothing process. And then when someone else is able to read it, they'd be like, "Wow, I'm not alone. This exists." And and if maybe I can, whether it's a song or a dance or making a film or a podcast or whatever, I like to write all of my ideas on the whiteboard it helps me get all my ideas out even though i could just type them i just like like drawing the ideas and then staring at it as an image um it's really beautiful thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it my last question would just be what advice do you have for someone who's like trying to find their place in what we talk about like an unjust world Mm. yeah
1: i love that question i would say um first you know, first thing would be like, what calls you, right? Like, what keeps you up at night? Uh, you know, you mentioned climate, like, immigration, prison abolition, you know, LGBTQ rights, uh, indigenous solidarity work. You know, when you're talking about like, what, what is that thing? Um, and then I would say, you know, that's the first question one we often go to, right? Because like the what is often how we define ourselves. Like, what do you do for work? Is like a classic question. I think it maybe even more. I don't know if it's more important but equally important would be like um with who and how right like who inspires you and why right like what do they say um that motivates you how do you feel when you're in that space um do you feel like you get to be your whole self like is this the community that and and I'm personally someone who thinks like if you want to find your place, like figure out what's going on and like you know, out of those whats, like who's doing what and like connect because we can't do it alone. Like we just m- most we can do some of our work alone, but most good ideas come in connection. We need each other to to really do this work. We are communal people, um, and so yeah, figuring out what organization, what group of people, who do you want to be in connection with? Maybe it's your friends too, you know. Um, who are the people that feel, like, right for you? And then I think, like, the other question would be, like, what is your motivation, right? Like, um, if your motivation is around your shame or around, like, wanting to save other people, then there might be some, like, internal healing work that, you know, is important to look at. And it's all happening all at the same time. It's not like you got to figure everything out before you can engage. Like, we learn by engaging. But I think if your motivation is because, you know, your life, is affected by you know the harm that's being caused and your liberation is dependent on you know working on this cause climate is a good one um then that's motivation or if your motivation is that you know you know that your liberation is bound with other people's because we're all connected and we actually we actually all have a stake in in changing this then i think that's a good one and so really looking at that and doing that internal work can always really be helpful um but that, those, that's my advice, you know, answer those questions and then, like, find, find some people.
0: Great advice. Hayden, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you so much for spending so much time helping people. I imagine I'm, I'm certain I'm not the first person who say this, but I really appreciate you. So thanks so much. And yeah.
1: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you too.
0: No worries. All right, everybody. See you soon.